Hello and welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program today... When there's a huge shortage of tech-savvy and tech professionals, that affects all industries and therefore the Australian economy. All of these are are wonderful skills that actually can be learnt. Yes, with economic headwinds blowing our way, we're going to have to work smarter and harder. According to a new report, Australia may need an extra 100,000 digital workers in areas such as health and finance. So where might they come from? We're going to find out. Also on the program today... All of these are are wonderful skills that actually can be learnt. They're not traits that you are either born with or, or you have or you don't have. They are all skills that you can actually learn. And it just takes the discipline, just like anything in life that you want to practice and learn. The more you practice, the more comfortable you get and the better you get at it. It's becoming harder and harder to get a job and even harder now to keep a job. What can you do to ensure that you have work in this era of technology? Future-proofing is what it's all about, making sure you are providing an employer something that a smart algorithm cannot. So we find out the best way to future-proof yourself. All this and more coming up on On The Money. But first, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has been looking very smug lately thanks to the figures he's just released for the 2019 budget. It shows a balanced budget thanks to mainly a windfall in commodities, mainly iron ore and coal. Of course, there are two major money earners. But can we afford any complacency when there are significant economic headwinds from the China and US trade war, downturns in what's left of our local industries, and we battle the worst drought we've had in 20 years? I asked Dr Nicholas Gruen, CEO of Lateral Economics, whether we had the right settings in the economy to meet these challenges. So if you're asking me, is our interest rates set at the right level for the long-term future of the country, I'd be able to say whether or not I agreed with the Reserve Bank and the experts who set the interest rate. And as a matter of fact, I don't entirely agree, but I know they're trying. And what's happening is that we should be doing something similar with fiscal policy, but unfortunately we turn it into a punch and duty show in which the Liberal Party tells us how responsible they are without being particularly responsible and the Labor Party tries desperately to appear responsible. It's it's kind of a psychodrama because uh, in the electorate's mind, the Labor Party is mum and they're good for health and education and the Liberal Party, uh, the, the, the right, so the left do that and the right are good with money. I mean, these figures today are really a result of a bit of luck with the commodities markets, aren't they? Uh, They're mostly the result of certain things that have happened within the economy that happen to be good for revenue uh, and, 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 yeah, that happen to be good for the budget position. They're not really... They're they're not a good measure of whether the economy is, is functioning well or whether... Um, you know, the, the, the situation is, uh, you know, is, is, in a situ- is, is in a position to be getting better uh, over the medium term. And the, the really, you know, the really biggest risks, risks to the economy 
are that we go into a global downturn. That's quite possible that China falls over. That's less uh, possible, but certainly possible. And nobody's really talking about what we ought to be doing uh, if that happens. But one of the things we certainly shouldn't be doing is trying to run a surplus. Uh, so, uh, so we go on with the punch and duty show and we don't really talk about the important structural issues. And, and speaking of those, uh, the main areas to be concerned about, I would guess, would be construction figures uh, coming off the boil, uh, real estate sort of uh, bumping along the bottom, uh, unemployment uh, figures not really improving and the actual uh, job ads are, are, are down. So it, the actual outlook isn't looking too good for the next year or two, is it? Uh, well, the outlook isn't great. Uh, we've had a problem with wage growth for a long time, and we're not addressing that. Um, at some stage, we will, I guess, but there's no sign that we're addressing that. Uh, and we're not addressing the larger problems. Uh, well, we don't actually need to address them at the moment. But if there is a downturn, you know, right now we should be preparing for that. We should be looking for uh, looking so, looking for things that might be shovel ready if we need to press go again. If we need to do another fiscal stimulus, who's talking about that? The, the Labor Party won't talk about it because the Labor Party's uh, having having masterminded a, a magnificent stimulus, one of the best in the Western world next to Korea and China, um, uh, the, uh, the Labor Party then said, oh, well, we'll get back to surplus at some preordained time. Of course, they didn't, but, but by doing that, they said that surpluses were bad. Uh, sorry, that, that uh, deficits were bad. And deficits are only bad if they're at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Uh, but, you know, that's not how we talk about these things. Uh, and if things get nasty and they could get as nasty or nasty as they did in, nine, in, in 2008 nine, then we're in a, not a very good state. The, 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 the debate is in a pretty infantile state to, uh, to, be, think, to be handling those kinds of issues. And, and so when is a good time to start paying back debt? I mean, if we're not going to do it now when uh, we've well, got a bit of a surplus, question. when do we do it? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question. The economist John Maynard Keynes talked about the gold standard, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. He, he talked about the gold standard as a barbarous relic. And what he meant by that is, is what happened was that countries didn't ran their national currencies pegged to the gold price. And the idea of pegging things to the gold price was that you can't really trust anyone to run a monetary system, and so you have to have a sort of arbitrary peg to an arbitrary standard of value. And, of course, if, a, if a gold becomes scarce or people want to buy gold for different reasons or, uh, you know, a whole new, you know, we find a new way to mine gold and the price of gold falls, then that destabilizes the monetary system of the world. That's what he meant by calling it a barbarous relic. Now, it may be that the same, the kind of system we have now, which, which basically hands a monetary system to the authorities and says, if you want to spend more money, you have to borrow it from the markets. Now, money is a public good. It's a it's a it's a it's an artifact of the entire system how much money is in the system so it's at least arguable that if we are going through very difficult 
financial times, it's at least arguable that uh, the central bank might, for instance, simply issue more money. That's called monetary financing of fiscal policy, and that's roughly what central banks in the Northern Hemisphere have done to buy back assets. But we haven't really thought about this properly. We haven't had a proper discussion about when that ought to be, that when that ought to happen, when one might be justified, when it might be sensible for the central bank to simply create money and then to, and then for the government to spend it on infrastructure or, or cash giveaways or whatever and how that should be accounted for, whether it should be debt or whether it should not be debt. Those are the kinds of things we should be having a debate about. And if we do think that it's better that, that we should allow the central bank to money finance a fiscal stimulus, then what are the institutional arrangements that should be that we should build to make sure that that doesn't just turn into print, you know, the, the usual democratic disasters of governments printing money until inflation takes off and we're all in a bad way? Those are the kinds of things we should be talking about. Because, Have you noticed we... a lot of that talk going on, Roderick? Yeah. <laughs> maybe not. No, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but you, you don't want to end up in a, a Weimar Republic situation, do you, then, uh, if, you, if you go to the extremes about printing money? Um, well, that's what I meant about creating a, an institutional environment in which you can't do that. So... You know, we're not in a situation where Weimar is bearing down on us. We have the institutions. We need to think about them. We need to be ready for some pretty nasty things that can happen to us. We're not talking about any of those things. Yes, and we should be talking about them. And that's Dr. Nicholas Gruen, CEO of Lateral Economics, speaking with me there. You're listening to On The Money, where smart money listens right around Australia. Yes, you are. And this is, uh, I'd just like to point out that recently the Australian Computer Society released its annual Digital Pulse Report. And each of the, uh, this report, which is prepared by Deloitte's, provides a snapshot into Australia's digital economy. And uh, unfortunately, the news isn't great. Uh, with about 100,000 tech jobs needed by 2024, Australia's skill shortage is putting our ability to grow at risk. So Daniel Ellison spoke with ACS President Johan Ramasundara about how Australia might solve this issue, take advantage of the rising digital tide. When there's a huge shortage of tech-savvy and tech professionals, that affects all industries and therefore the Australian economy. This day and age, every industry and every organisation needs tech-savvy employees. And when there's a huge shortage of tech-savvy and tech professionals, that affects all industries and therefore the Australian economy. Australia is about to enter the third decade of the 21st century, and many experts want to ensure our workers are skilled enough to allow us to grow as fast as our technology. The Australian Computer Society has recently released its annual Digital Pulse Report and is concerned about what some of the findings mean for Australia's ability to provide enough digital and IT workers to sustain the ever-growing economy. 
The report, which is commissioned by the ACS and prepared by Deloitte Access Economics, provides an annual assessment into Australia's digital economy. This year's report is focused particularly on sustainable growth of the digital workforce and Australia's ability to remain competitive on the world economic stage. Released by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, the report states that Australia is currently suffering from a shortage of skilled ICT workers, with an expected deficit of 100,000 digital workers by 2024. While it is the IT industry itself that is currently suffering the most from this, ACS President Johan Ramasundara believes this will have a knock-on effect for all other industries. IT has become the backbone and an enabler of everything we do, whether it's the radio station, whether it's the, uh, the, the land that we cultivate uh, food, or whether it's the health sector. I, I mentioned the health sector because health sector has seen the, the most uh, rapid growth in the ICT skills requirements, according to the Digital Pulse 2019. So it's, it's no longer a health sector, it's a health tech-driven health sector. So you look at the doctors, they are reliant on digital technology, and they're going to be reliant more and more to augment their skills uh, through the use of big data, through the use of uh, uh, telehealth and, and all that. So uh, that's an example of technology coming into other sectors and us becoming even more reliant on technology to deliver those uh, services in those industries. Mr Ramasundara is calling upon policymakers to make decisions to ensure our IT industry and workers are protected. I think we need to not just care about these findings, we need to really take them into consideration in our policy development and decision making at all levels of government and um, corporate sector, simply because every uh, discipline is underpinned by technology. So what's happening in the technology field really shapes uh, every other discipline uh, in today's world. We should definitely consider the, the findings and make decisions based on this research because every discipline um, is underpinned by technology. And whether it's health sector or defence sector or retail sector or banking, Every, every sector has a really big ICT footprint and this report really outlines the trends and it's very important that the decision makers, policy makers, consider them, the, the, the report in their decision making. Since the report was released according to Mr Ramasandara, the ACS has been thrilled with the response and that it seems to be helping inform this vitally important conversation. The really exciting news has been a lot of people have been referring to the report. A lot of people have been quoting the report. A lot of people have been using the report to uh, base uh, their decision-making. And that's the idea of it, uh, to, to make sure that it becomes a tool. And we have been running it for five years. So you can actually get the snapshot over five-year period, year on year, as to how we have performed in the tech sector in Australia. And the fact that the decision makers, the policy makers are referring to it is a, is a great start. And we, what we would really like to see is some of the recommendations that we've listed in there being implemented and taken up. But we know that's not going to happen over a two-week period, but we hope that it's in trade. One explanation for the lack of skilled workers may be the reduction in the numbers of those being trained in IT. According to the report, 
while university graduations increased to almost 6,000, the vocational education and training sector experienced a decline of 11,875 IT enrollments in 2017. This is the biggest issue, meeting that 100,000 ICT skilled workers demand. And the way that we can meet it is not necessarily through the university system, not necessarily just through the vet sector. It needs to be a combination of those with reskilling of the existing workforce as well as attracting top talent from uh, overseas and other economies. So it needs to be a, a combination of those. But if we were trying to just meet them through the vocational uh, sector or university sector graduates only, we won't be able to meet them. While the reasons for the shortfall remain undefined, it is clear that it is in Australia's interest to provide these skilled positions. According to the Digital Pulse report, Australia's contribution of digital to its gross domestic product is expected to grow by 40% by 2024, and the benefit to a worker of reskilling by then could be as much as $11,000 to the individual. The, the other good news is the IT jobs grew by 2.5 annually, and uh, that's, that's really good, and the ICT jobs are paying a lot more in salary. While the financial benefits for both country and individual are clear, Johan believes that filling this shortfall could open up a world of new opportunities for Australians as well. I really want to see a world where Australians are not just consumers of technology. Australians need to understand the, the technology so they also understand the potential of technology so they can actually use it to enhance humanity, enhance the activities that they're doing. So they're making a conscious effort at using technology to uh, better their profession, better their livelihood, better humanity. So that's why I think one of the reasons why you should really understand technology, but that, because whether we like it or not, uh, every industry is reliant on it, and in every industry go, is going to be ever more reliant on it in the future. So uh, unless people are able to work side by side and with the technology uh, really augmenting what they do, uh, then they're not going to be able to have a job in the future. So if you want to have a job in the future, you need to learn to work with technology. Um, And hopefully, if you understand technology, you wouldn't work for technology. Johan Ramasandara, president of the Australian Computer Society, speaking there with Daniel Ellison. Money, making mountains out of moolah. Yes, and look, we're hoping that mountains of moolah will, will be heading your way as well here on, on The Money. Now, what is work going to look like in the future? We've just been talking a bit about what's happening in the IT field, but uh, how should we set ourselves up to meet future technological technological challenges? 40% of jobs that exist today are likely to disappear in the next 10 to 15 years, according to research. Well, how are we going to future-proof ourselves so that we're going to continue to be able to work whenever, whatever and whenever the future may throw something at us? I asked Simon Roundtree, founder of Change Ready, what sort of things we need to think about to future-proof ourselves. The workplace is going to change with the rate of technology and the impact that that is having um, on many industries around the world, same with the world economy, and also um, the way consumers want either products or information. So to remain relevant in the future, 
um, individuals are going to have to look at um, creating or having in their toolkit some very specific skills that are going to help them across many industries. And they're things um, such as creative thinking, ensuring that um, that you're a sort of person that can think outside the square. Um, not only that, but you actually have the ability to to remain level-headed in very challenging or difficult scenarios. Because uh, that sort of keeps you algorithm-proof too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because that's, that's something that only a human can do rather than a, some computer programmer's algorithm. Totally correct, which also leads us on to another great skill to have, which is um, emotional intelligence. And that, in essence, is really about an individual being able to um, understand their emotions and the impact that that is having on them and others, but also the beautiful skill about being able to read it in other people. So that way you can manage people to make sure they maintain high productivity and engagement for long periods of time. Uh, yeah, that's uh, something that previously uh, people hadn't thought about in the workplace, wasn't it? Uh, being actually uh, more, I guess, when you're dealing with people and working with people, the emotional intelligence is what's going to make you more productive. Absolutely. And the research is really clear. For organisations that want to create high productivity, which is long-lasting, then emotional intelligence, being engaged, being connected, people understanding why they are there, what they are working for, and their, the role that they play and how important that is makes a massive difference. And another thing you've been talking about is adaptive thinking. What's that? Yeah, adaptive thinking is very much like creative thinking. It's being able to um, take away the automation that happens and be able to look at possible scenarios, so future read, possible things that can go wrong, and then be able to come up with the solutions to stop that, that um, problem turning into a disaster. And, and some of the things uh, that uh, happens in a disaster, you, you tend to come together to have some sort of uh, uh, team response. So how important is teamwork in today's environment? Teamwork is really critical, not only from a face-to-face -face perspective, but also teamwork from a virtual perspective because the way businesses are these days and in industries, you may manage a team that may not all be in the same building as you. So being able to have the skills to manage people across a wide range of areas and also potentially a wide range of time zones around the world, making sure that you've got great communication skills, accountability, and that you also have the skills to manage multi-digital platforms to manage these people is also going to be really you know, important about creating really highly engaged and effective teams. Some of these things may be easier for some people than others. Is it easy? Is, how, how easy is it for people to learn this sort of stuff? Look, everyone is individual and people will learn at different paces. But all of these are, are wonderful skills that actually can be learned. They're not traits that you are either born with or, or you have or you don't have. They are all skills that you can actually learn. And it just takes the discipline, just like anything in life that you want to practice and learn. The more you practice, the more comfortable you get and the better you, you get at it. And uh, what, what's the role of, of technology in this? Um, you know, people often think, well, you know, maybe I should do another course on you know, Microsoft something. Uh, is, is that going to be a way to help you in the future or should you be thinking a little bit more broader than that? 
Uh, it, it's trying to get the best of both worlds. So technology is definitely going to have an impact on, on future jobs and, and future-proofing your skills. Um, and they're things like um, software design or work within sort of virtual reality or e-commerce or data analysis, analysis those sort of things. But it's also the people-orientated skills that are also going to be really crucial because there's only so much that technology can do or either through robotics, etc., but you still need to connect with people. So emotional intelligence, creative thinking, curiosity, um, all of those things are going to be highly important in the future. Well, look, say, I, say I've been working in the uh, construction industry and there's a bit of a, going through a bit of a downturn at the moment. What sort of things can I do to, to help make myself more marketable? Certainly there's a number of things. It, it's, um, the first instance is have a look at your skills um, that you have and understand the value of your skills. So some people may say, well, all I do is just manage people. But there's many, many skills within that. There's wonderful communication skills, planning skills, potentially strategic planning skills, um, those sort of things. So really have a look at what you do and understand the value of your skills, which are actually transferable across many industries, not just the industry that you're currently employed in. So to sum up, if you're looking to future-proof yourself in today's employment environment, what, what is sort of perhaps the first steps I should be taking? Certainly have a look at where you want to be um, job-wise for you in the future and have a look at where that industry is going. So if you feel that that industry is having a downturn, then start to look at um, the skills that you can add as a person. So as we said, problem-solving skills, creativity thinking, skills around collaboration, all of those people skills, emotional intelligence are going to be highly, highly um, marketable and, and usable in the future for you. All right. Um, well, I thank you very much, Simon Roundtree. You're the, the founder of Change Ready, um, which, uh, which you know, obviously uh, looking at change management and leadership and all those sorts of things that people need to, uh, to do for their organisations these days to be competitive. Thank you very much for talking to us here at 2SEO and On The Money. Thanks so much. Yes, and that, was, of course, was Simon Roundtree, founder of Change Ready, speaking with me there. And that's all we have time for here on On The Money. We're going to be back again next week to let you in on everything that you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producer this week, Daniel Ellison. On The Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER for the Community Radio Network. You can find all of our shows and stories on 2SER.com slash On The Money. Subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. There's been some new uploads to there already. Look at uh, at on the money to SER and also Facebook and Instagram as well. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.